When it comes to my group of friends, there's one thing they all share in common. Binging shows. Except it hits a snag when the group turns to me. Why? Because I don't binge anything. Walking Dead, Game of Thrones, Breaking Bad, Sons of Anarchy, Stranger Things, Black Mirror, Mad Men, Orange is the New Black, American Horror Story, the list goes on and on, and I haven't watched them. The big trends of streaming services like Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, and the new Disney Plus to name a few, they've never really been something that I've gravitated towards. Sure, I've had Netflix and I currently have Amazon Prime, but I wasn't spending hours upon hours catching the hottest shows out there. It was never my thing. I gravitated more towards documentaries, films, and stand-up comedy. But one show has broken through. One show has not only become the first show I've really ever binge-watched, but after three seasons thus far, has become the greatest long-running series I've ever watched over the years, even bypassing all the anime that I've watched. That show is The Expanse, a science fiction epic that took me by surprise and certainly by storm. So why this show? Why did this become the show that I broke the record of not binge-watching? And how did it also become my favorite show of all time? Well, let's start from the beginning. Hello everyone, I'm Adam aka CS Radical, and welcome to the Radical Recall. Happy to be back with all of you as this show hits its second episode. I was beyond proud of the first episode I recorded. It was a fun trip down memory lane, and certainly leaves the door open for future episodes of the show where I look at other games that have left one hell of a mark on me. Will it be hour-long episodes that take me six hours to write the script for? Well, maybe not, as I don't know how many of these suckers I can pop out using that same path, but hey, you never know. I doubt as I'm writing this that this specific episode will go just as long, and in fact, I'm hoping more often than not that these episodes are more around the half-hour mark, given the amount of time these take to write out. So this episode, like I said at the top, will be about The Expanse. It seemed like a perfect time to do an episode about the show, as the fourth season will be up on Amazon Prime on the 13th of December, just days away. As to be expected, I will be talking about full spoilers on this show. So if you haven't watched the show yet, this isn't exactly the show you want to be listening to. So if you're here wanting to know why you should be watching The Expanse, allow me to give you a little insight into the show, and then you can put this on pause, watch 36 episodes that'll take you just over a full day to finish, and then you can come back here and listen to all the juicy spoilers. This show is an absolute masterpiece of a sci-fi epic. It takes an early story of a missing girl and a derelict ship with a distress call, and after three seasons has turned it into a show chock full of political struggles, plenty of double crosses, and a whole whack of what the bloody hell is that in sci-fi form. It has a diverse cast of characters and does a fantastic job of being just that without calling attention to it, like a lot of other shows do, with the main cast not having a single weak link among them in my opinion. There's no one in the close-knit cast of recurring characters that I hate, dislike, or I'm even indifferent to. I love every single one of them, and that goes for a sizable chunk of the side characters as well. This is a show that will make you feel every emotion in the book, but most importantly, it will make you think, because it is so damn good at keeping you guessing. So this is your final warning. Full spoilers for seasons 1 to 3 are on the way. 
Long before I even started watching the show, I was aware of The Expanse. At one of the places I used to work at, they printed various advertising materials, whether it be posters and banners, display cases, or packaging for boxed items. And at this workplace, I had seen advertising for the show, though I never really thought anything of it. Like I said, I'm not one to binge shows, so it was never really on my radar at the time. But then I went to a party one night. With some people at my work, I played slow-pitch softball, along with a few others, and a couple on the team would always host parties on various holidays. This specific party was a Christmas party, and while I didn't know about 80% of the people there, I always found ways to mingle. I found myself drawn to a conversation where the words, I'm working on this show right now, were spoken, and my attention was grabbed instantly. See, I went to college for television broadcasting, so I've always had an affinity for all things behind the scenes in the television and film industry. So when I heard that line, I walked over and listened for a moment before asking, what show is this? And that answer was The Expanse. I don't remember the man's name, nor his position, but he worked on the show. So I went from not having it on my radar to someone who literally worked on the damn thing selling me on it, and it certainly got my attention. It still took a while, though, before I watched it, mostly because I was lazy and didn't really look into it. And when I finally got Amazon Prime, which is where the show is featured, I didn't even get it knowing that The Expanse was on there. It was actually because a bunch of anime I've been wanting to watch was on that service, and I had just been avoiding it for a while as I didn't want to have a second streaming service since it was already running Crunchyroll for all my anime. Booting up Prime Video for the first time and flipping through stuff, I saw the anime I was looking for, then the car show The Grand Tour, which made me happy, as I used to watch Top Gear with my friends all the time back in high school. But then, there it was, The Expanse, staring at me in the face. It took a little more time to finally click on it and dive in, but once I did, it was all over for me. The first thing that really grabbed my attention was admittedly the one person I already knew on the show, though I had never seen her in a live-action production. Shorei Ogdajlu played two characters in video games, both being major ones for me. She was Lakshmi 2 in the Destiny series, but most importantly, she was Admiral Shalaran Vastonbe in the Mass Effect series, particularly Mass Effect 2 with Talizora Vasnima's companion mission where she's under trial. That voice is unmistakable, one of the most unique female voices I've ever heard. So imagine my shock when I heard that voice for the first time on The Expanse. And then imagine my shock when I later realized I'd actually seen her once before in Star Trek Beyond, but I somehow didn't notice. Not too happy with myself on that one. But Shorey immediately captured my full attention. Thomas Jane as Detective Miller certainly intrigued me, but Shorey as Christian Avicerala, a UN official, was what got me to go, oh, okay, and start really paying attention. Seeing a woman of both her age and race looking like a dangerous villain was a massive breath of fresh air for me, instead of being the usual evil white guy. Well, for the time being, anyway. The end of that first episode is what locked me in. I did not expect at all for the crew of the Canterbury to go from a full crew to five people in one episode. That genuinely shocked me. I suppose it could be because since I don't watch all of these shows, I'm not necessarily used to mass death so soon. But holy freaking hell did that get my attention as the credits rolled. Yeah. You bet your ass I frantically tapped the X button on my PlayStation 4 controller to boot up that next episode. 
The best part about this first season as a whole is that they manage three separate storylines and slowly work to bring them all together. The end of this first season bring two of them certainly completely together. You have of course the initial big story, that being of the crew of the now destroyed Canterbury trying to just survive after being left on their pod when checking out that derelict ship, the Scopuli. You've got James Holden, the captain who just wants to do the right thing, Alex Kamal, the very upbeat pilot of the ship and my personal favorite, Naomi Nagata as the expert engineer who seems to be hiding something, Amos Burton, the toughest nails muscle of the crew, and of course, Shed Garvey, the panic-stricken medic who actually isn't a medic, and lasts three episodes before his head goes on a space date with a railgun shell, and has one of the coolest and most gruesome moments on the show. If that's how decapitation looks like in Zero Gravity, good lord that's a frightening sight. You have the story Detective Miller, trying to find a missing girl by the name of Julie Mao, who is the daughter of a very wealthy businessman in Jules Pierre Mao, who becomes a big player in the following season. And you have the story of Christian Avasarala, trying to keep the Earth safe from what she believes is a threat of war from Mars. All of these stories are interesting on their own, and once they start to intertwine as more information becomes available, things just continue to pick up. The crew of the Canterbury managed to survive nearly dying on the pod they were stuck in, and get picked up by a Martian ship they believe is what destroyed the Canterbury. They imprison the crew, except for Alex, who we find out was treated better because he was an honorably discharged Navy pilot for the Martian fleet, which creates a bit of hostility between the crew for a moment, but quickly shifts to Naomi when the rumors of her being an OPA terrorist float around. This is where the show shines in my opinion. The fact that for the first three seasons thus far, there's a massive amount of tension brewing between the three nations of Earth, Mars, and the Belt. It was such a great storyline that was constantly present during whatever key storyline the episode is running on. No matter what they were doing or who it was, the looming war between the three nations was always there. The crew is told that Mars had nothing to do with the attack, and the ship is soon attacked by a similar looking ship to what destroyed the Cant. The flagship of the Martian Navy somehow loses, and with their help, the crew Mina Shed, who's off on a headless space date, managed to escape on a smaller Martian ship, which soon becomes their flagship, the Rosanante. They create a temporary alliance with ex-Earth military officer Fred Johnson, who is now a key player in the OPA, and they're sent out to find a survivor of the Scopuli, things starting to come full circle for them. Meanwhile, Avasarala is dealing with the fallout of the Canterbury and the Mars ship the Donager's destruction, as war continues to loom closer. Her villainous ideas continue to run as she commits war crimes, backstabs old friends, and then tries to get an idea of what Holden and his crew could possibly be getting themselves into, by trying to talk to his mother, which is one of the best conversations in the entire show. She gets a spy on Tycho Station, where Holden and company meet with Fred Johnson, and that man named Kenzo manages to get on the Rosinante as they leave to find this person of interest. At that time as well, Miller's search for Julie Mao is getting closer and closer. After going through a few dead ends and nearly getting himself killed, courtesy of Anderson Dawes, another OPA player, he eventually gets what he believes is a big break, with a much bigger picture also on the side. But his boss fires him, 
and takes all his data, thus showing she's in Dawes's pocket, meaning his assumptions were correct. With the last piece of information left on Julie's whereabouts, it's all he's got left, and he leaves for Arrow Station, a broken man with only one thing left to go after, that being Julie, who Dawes, as he nearly sent Miller to his death, suspects that he's in love with, and Miller admits that it is the case. Wouldn't you know it, after finding the Anubis, the ship that really destroyed the Cant, and is also connected to the Scopuli, the next piece of the puzzle takes Holden and the rest of the Rossi crew to Eros as well. And wouldn't you know it, they nearly get killed because of Kenzo, and there's Miller to make the save. And they're both looking for the same person, the Rossi crew knowing Julie by her code name. But not all stories have a good ending, and they find her. Dead, and looking like the victim of a D-list horror movie, with crystals coming out of her skin. And then all of the information flows in. Julie was on the scopuli to intercept the Anubis, which the OPA believed was holding something that could give the belt something to use in their fight against Earth and Mars. And boy, were they right. On the Anubis was some sort of bioweapon that would kill the crews of both ships, Julie being the only one left. Escaping to Eros, she unfortunately realizes that she's infected the same way and dies in her hotel room, presumably not long before Miller and Holden find her. Those stealth ships like the Anubis? Built on Earth, which completely screws up Avasarala's idea of Mars and the Belt coming together to start a war with Earth. In one fell swoop, all three stories are brought together and come to a close to varying degrees. Well, at least until Aerostation gets shut down and hundreds, if not thousands, of innocent people are subjected to radiation and this blue bioweapon starts running rampant on the station. Miller and the Rossi crew manage to escape, Miller and Holden being very close to death too via radiation poisoning, and we end the first season seeing Kenzo taken away by a blue tentacle as we see this blue bioweapon is more than just a weapon. It's alive. An aerostation is becoming a breeding ground. The second season doesn't continue right where we left off. They instead throw a curveball by having a start with a whole new cast of characters, specifically Martian Navy Sergeant Bobby Draper, who quickly becomes a favorite of mine throughout the season, with her lack of tolerance for bullshit, which is quite frequent throughout her initial arc. But before we really get to her arc, Avasarala is going through hers. Suspecting that another UN official, Sadavir Ehrenreich, is planning on making her a scapegoat in his plan to start a war with Mars, which is especially easy for him to lean towards after Mars destroys Phoebe Station, where this blue matter that we left on Eros was first found. Now the war is truly starting to move forward, which later leads to Earth destroying one of Mars' moons in response, Deimos. Again, the show succeeds so well at having multiple stories running with massive interest. Holden and his crew are trying to figure out where the data being tracked on Eros is going. With Fred Johnson's help, they track the signal to a station where they easily take it over with the help of the OPA, and find the scientist in charge of the whole operation. Who Miller promptly splatters his brains all over everyone and everything before they can get any real information out of him. Initially, everyone is furious with Miller for this. But once they get a real sense on what this life form 
now called the protomolecule, is doing on Eros, attention is quickly shifted to destroying the station. The idea to destroy it is to ram a Mormon mothership into it. Yeah, only one religion gets mentioned in the show, and it's the Mormons of all people. The goal is to ram the ship into Eros and direct it towards the sun. During the mission, they are setting up bombs to seal off the station, but when a humanitarian ship refuses not to dock at Eros, Holden has to make the ultimate choice to blow them up. Damn charitable people being nice. In the debris, Miller, who's setting up some of the bombs, gets trapped on the station as one of the bombs got activated, and in order to not explode early, a person has to be there to reset the timer. Over, and over, and over again. So he's stuck, and you're left to assume he will inevitably sacrifice himself once everything falls into place. But it all turns to shit. When the Mormon ship is about to collide with Eros, it misses. Which should be impossible. The coordinates were set perfectly, Aerostation is an asteroid. It's on an orbit. But it missed. But not because the ship missed. But because Aerostation, an asteroid, moved on its own. The protomolecule is very much a sentient being. And instead of going into the sun, it's heading straight for Earth. The protomolecule was found on Phoebe Station by Jules Pierre Mao's group, Protogen. Yes, that Mao, the father of Julie Mao. It is called many things, but the persistent thought from everyone is simple. It's alien. In one full season, we went from a small space mystery to a freaking first contact storyline. Granted, the life form isn't exactly walking around and can't be talked with, but here's a show actually having the first recorded contact with something outside of their galaxy. I have a bit of a penchant for first contact plots. You know, at least when Mass Effect isn't ruining them. So Aerostation is now being commandeered by a sentient alien life form and is speeding towards Earth. So what now? Fire a bunch of nukes? Yep. Oh, what's that? The station's now going stealth mode and can't be targeted? Well, shit, now what? Rosinante attempts to be the target for the nukes while they follow the station. But the station just speeds up faster than the ship can go without killing the crew. Well, now they're double screwed. So how do they get out of this mess? By pulling one of the most shocking things I've ever seen. Miller, having realized that the only thing left to do is to take the bomb he's holding and resetting constantly, is to take it into the core of the station, where the protomolecule seems to be based. He does so, but in reaching the core, he discovers that that's the hotel room that he found Julie's body in. Julie is the core, an infected being that has seemingly infected the protomolecule back. She's the driving force. Somehow convincing her to redirect the station, he, I presume sexually coerces Julie, to crashing the station into Venus, thus sacrificing himself to save everyone, but in a way I never, ever would have guessed how it would happen. This moment blew my freaking mind when it happened, both because of what happened 
but when it happened. Anyone listening to this who hasn't watched the show would have guessed that this was the end of the second season. But it was only episode 5 of 13. They killed off essentially the main character not even halfway into a season. Holy freaking shit. But now we finally get to Bobby Draper. On Ganymede, one of Jupiter's moons, her unit is suddenly ambushed by Earth soldiers crossing borderlines. Except they're not attacking them. They're running from something. A blue thing without a spacesuit on. Bobby's the only survivor and knows what she saw, but no one in the Mars fleet believes her and tells her to lie at a peace summit on Earth. She does, but Avasarala can see that something's off and eventually presses her enough that it leads her to talking about what she actually saw, infuriating her officers, but strengthening Avasarala's suspicions. Stuck on Earth, Bobby eventually gets tired of the bullshit that the Mars Navy is feeding her and snaps, attacking her superior officer and eventually escaping from her room, which she is trapped in after she changed from the false testimony. Thankfully able, though, to adjust to Earth's light and gravity. She's found by Avasarala, who confirms what she's now heard going on with Venus, since the arrows crash. There's something activating on the planet, and it is eventually corroborating to be just one of many projects Protogen was doing with the protomolecule, the being Bobby saw in Ganymede, a protomolecule soldier. During all this, the Rosinante takes a back seat for a little while, mourning Miller's death. The OPA is gaining ground, with Dawes rallying the troops, while Fred Johnson struggles to keep himself as a figurehead. Dawes takes the only surviving scientist the crew retrieved after that mission where Miller blew one guy's head off and leaves us with the one asshole I hate for his entire run of the show, Diego. Little shit. Is this how Game of Thrones fans felt about Joffrey? Huh. Now it all makes sense. We get our big new character in Prax, a herbalist who worked on Ganymede during the attack. Before he arrives, though, on Tycho Station, where the Rossi crew are, we're subjected to one of the most shocking moments that really caught me off guard. Because I was thinking too much about Ganymede, I temporarily forgot about the tension between the Belters and the Inners. So when Prax's friend gets separated to go on a different refugee ship, it's instead all of the Inners being rounded up and spaced. That shocked the hell out of me and puts Prax in a hell of a mental state. Already shell-shocked, and positive his little girl, May, had died in the Ganymede Station attack, where Bobby met this proto-soldier. He joins up with the Rossi crew, after they all learn that Dr. Strickland was on Ganymede during the attack, and worked for Protogen. He escaped, and in a video recording, shows that Prax's daughter, May, is with him. They intend to go back to Ganymede, but Mars is hovering around the station like mad, so it isn't easy. They use a refuse ship to get down, only to get a member of the crew killed, and just to make tensions worse, but they do succeed at getting on the station regardless, before it is made a no-fly zone, so there's no way off 
for the time being. Back on Earth, we learn about this new form of the protomolecule, this time a weapon designed for Mars, that being the super soldiers. With this information being told to Bobby before she broke free like I said earlier, she claims political asylum to the UN, and Avasarala picks her up immediately. She learns Aaron Wright has been working with Mao the whole time, and now seeks to get revenge on Mao for betraying him for nearly causing Earth's destruction. Mao then gets a hold of Avasarala and sets up a meeting with her, as she has all his assets and even family held captive to try and draw him out of hiding. Aaron Wright immediately stabs her in the back by telling Mao to kill her, Draper, and Katyar, Avasarala's hired guard and spy once they arrive at the location to meet Mao at. He also kills a Martian defense minister and orders a major Martian ship's destruction as well. So he's going full villain now. The season ends as when finding that the soldiers are actually infected Belter children who have special genetics, and May is indeed one of the children being tested on, though is perfectly fine at this point. The Rossi crew engage further into a test lab before leaving the station with a proto-soldier sneaking aboard. They are able to get rid of it when they realize that the proto-molecule is attracted to energy as it keeps going for the ship's core and instead goes for Holden if they turn the ship's core off. So they lure it outside, throw a nuclear core towards the ship's thrusters, and when the being grabs the core, they burn it to nothing with the thrusters. On the rendezvous point, Avasaral and company are indeed attacked. Caught your shot and wounded. Bobby sneaks into a vent to try and get her power armor to help the two and manages to save them at the very last moment. The season ends with another Venus shocker. After a research ship investigates the crash site, it's literally torn apart into individual pieces, almost methodically. Bodies unknown. The station is still alive, even on Venus, after crashing into it. Now into the third season, the war is on, Aaron Wright declaring war on Mars, getting his wish. He also frames Avasarala for everything, to cover his ass. Meanwhile, her and Bobby escape, on of all ships, Julie Mao's racing ship, before becoming an OPA agent. This is when we get Shorei in a tight spacesuit, and for a 67-year-old woman, I can only imagine any female viewer of the show thinking, man, I hope I look this good at 50, let alone 67. Only room for two, Kotyar has to escape on a different pod. Avasarala nearly dies during the escape from Aaron Wright's goons before the Rocinante of all ships is there for the rescue. The Holden and company have no idea that they're about to take on a UN official, especially one like Avasarala, who initially was hunting them down. Bobby's not too happy when she discovers she's been rescued by a stolen Martian vessel. Avasarala, though, could care less at this point. She's still alive, which means she's got another chance to bring Mao and Aaron Wright down. Speaking of which, the war continues as Aaron Wright convinces the Secretary General of the UN to fire on several Martian railgun installments. But when one missile just takes a little too long, one shot is fired and destroys 
a chunk of South America, killing an estimated 2 million people, our biggest disaster yet. Picked up by a UN ship, Cotyers is able to convince a UN Admiral, Souther, what Aaron Wright has been doing. He's an old friend of Abasarala, so he's more likely to believe that Aaron Wright is the bad one, not her. However, on the same ship, Aaron Wright has a plan in Admiral Naguyan, who takes command of Souther's ship before any real decisions can be made. The crew of Souther's ship eventually commit mutiny, and many are killed, including Souther, and Naguyan is wounded. But even after all this, Aaron Wright can only get away for so long. With Avasarala still alive, she gets Holden to send all available information on his plans to a Mormon pastor in Anna Volvadov, who's very close to the Secretary General, who Aaron Wright is getting in the ear of. Already hating the man for messing with the speech she wrote for the Secretary General, she reveals this information, and Aaron Wright is arrested for treason. Mars is also made aware of this when a few Martians get on board the Rossi, nearly take over the ship until Bobby finds them, and are spared to send the same information about Aaron Wright to the Mars fleet. Afterwards, on Io, another Jupiter moon, the Rossi crew find Mao's lab for testing on the children, where Mao several times flip-flops between canceling the project because he gets attached to May, given that he just recently lost his daughter, but changes back to going full speed when he sees the progress on a different child. The crew make their way through the lab, are able to capture Mao, and kill Strickland after actually finding May unharmed. I was shocked by this, as I was prepared from the very beginning that they'd find May already infected and transformed. But no, the bad ending actually never came. Also during this recovery, Bobby is attacked by another infected soldier, but is able to defeat it, showing that while it's indeed a challenge, they can defeat them without extra shenanigans. Back on that ship, where Southern and Naguyan fought it out, a missile launched from Io infects the ship with these monsters, and also several other missiles containing them were fired. Locations never truly given, we're just left to assume everywhere. Kotyr, who's still on the ship, manages to scrap the whole thing by self-destructing it, sacrificing himself to stop the spread while the Rossi tries its best to destroy as many missiles as it can. This problem quickly becomes a mute point, when the crash site on Venus suddenly leaves the planet. Looking like a sentinel from the Matrix, the protomolecule leaves into space and stops past Uranus, forming a ring from its structure. It doesn't take long for someone to try and go through it, and acts like a gravity wave, stopping everything and showing a single pilot going through the goriest death I've seen without it being from a horror film or a gore fest like Saw or Final Destination. With a little time passing, the OPA is now getting even stronger, now considered the governing body of the belt. Dawes, of course, at the helm, but Johnson welcomed back into the fray. With an alien life form in existence, the war between everyone is put on hold. For now, maybe. In this time period as well, the Belt has recovered that Mormon ship, and is converting it into a battleship of their own, captained by Kamina, my favorite girl in the series, but also co-captained by Ashford, 
who I quickly become attached to because his voice is so damn cool. <sighs> Except he brings Diego with him. Son of a bitch. Suddenly, Holder starts to see Miller again, but no one else can see him. It doesn't take long for him to connect that as soon as the pilot hit that ring, Miller started to appear to him. But before this can be explained, a woman, who we see showing some sort of superhuman abilities, without being infected like the kids on EO, commits a really vicious murder and destroys an earth vessel while putting out a doctored video having Holden claim responsibility on behalf of the belt. To deflect responsibility, the OPA reluctantly fire on the Rossi, who is short Naomi, as she's now on this new OPA ship. The death of the Rossi crew seems imminent, but Miller comes to Holden one more time, and while saying a bunch of gibberish, does say everything's moving too fast, which makes Holden come to the conclusion that the ring only activates to fast movements. So they go into the ring as slowly as possible before the missile hits them with no option left. And they end up being locked in a very slow, almost stasis-like speed in the ring, like time almost stops in there. Several ships, including a Martian ship carrying Bobby Draper and a UN ship carrying Anna, among other people, also follows into the ring in pursuit of the unknown, or in some cases in pursuit of the Rossi. That superhuman girl is revealed to be Clarissa Mao, another daughter of Jules Pierre Mao. She has an interest in Holden, believing he needs to die for what happened to her family. With the Martians though in close pursuit of Holden, he believes the only way out now is to surrender, as when a probe reaches the edge of the other side, it just disappears, making them think that if they just keep going, they'll eventually die. So surrender is the best chance they've got at survival. Naomi leaves the OPA ship to try and get to the Rossi, believing that this is still truly her home, while Holden leaves the ship upon Miller's suggestion to head to the core of the ring. Upon reaching it, he's quickly followed by Martian soldiers, Bobby among them. Inside the core, Miller, calling himself the Investigator, admits he's not a real being, but an image in Holden's mind, trying to get him to activate the core. So the protomolecule can learn what happened to an ancient civilization lost long ago. But when the Martians find Holden, one soldier attacks him and the core reacts, literally disassembling the human being and lowering the speed restrictions even further inside the ring killing more people like the pilot who first sped into the ring. Holden finally activates the core and gets a Mass Effect-like vision witnessing planets being destroyed before falling unconscious. To make matters worse, someone got the idea to throw a nuke at the ring to try to destabilize it, but only causes it to change and charge what appears to be a weapon like the one that destroyed all of those planets, but not by hitting each planet one by one, no, 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 but by destroying their sun. In all this chaos, Ashford takes over the ship, convinces everyone they need to destroy the ring, while Holden, unable to communicate with all of these ships, understands via Miller that the only way to stop this 
is to power everything off, as the molecule only reacts to energy, much like the being they killed at the end of Season 2. Finding a way to broadcast to everyone, Anna, who was rescued earlier, convinces everyone to power down their ships, while Amos, Alex, and eventually Bobby holds off attacking soldiers intent on stopping their broadcast. Diego is also part of this group, going after Kamina and Naomi, who were hacking into the ship's system, and he's finally killed off by being crushed with an elevator, which made me so damn happy because I was convinced he was going to kill Kamina, my favorite girl on the show. The ship eventually powers down, but the behemoth is last. That Mormon converted to OPA ship? After Clarissa, of all people, stops Ashford from killing Naomi and Holden, somehow, after all of this insanity, none of the major good guys die in this whole thing. In fact, almost nobody dies at all of a real name. The ring activates once more, but this time, in recognizing the ships as friendly, it seemingly opens up pathways to 1,300 systems. Holden guesses that the Molecule wanted these rings to be open all along, as it wants to know why its creators were killed, and that humanity must be part of their plan, and warns Miller, or the investigator in this case, that humanity is inevitably going to explore all of these systems because of greed and starting a universal gold rush. The show to this point ends with the Rossi going through the ring and some sort of apparition is going after Holden, my assumption being a physical manifestation of that it. And what a journey up to this point. Nearly 6,000 words so far, and I've only gone through the story. So much like my last recall, I'm going to summarize a number of things that I want to gush about as a way to end this episode. I cannot stress enough how much I've come to love all of these characters. Holden is everything I want to be. Alex is the brightest part of the whole show. Avasarala is an absolute badass of a woman. Same goes for Kamina and Bobby. Amos, even in his cold, almost bland nature, just gets you to love him. Naomi has so many layers to her that you're constantly wondering what's next for her. Side characters like Kamina, Johnson, Ashford, Dawes, Cotier, etc., etc., just complement the primary cast so damn well and keep you invested, no matter who's on camera. There's basically no one on that show that makes me lose interest in what's going on. Except for Diego, and thank god that little shit is gone. It isn't without some faults, though. I'm really miffed by the girl Holden was having sex with in the opening moments of the show. She was one of many killed on the cant, and she left with the words, there's something you should know. But it's never been explained. Perhaps it was never meant to be anything, and I imagine with the molecule, the ring, and now all these new worlds to explore, it won't ever be visited. But if there was something she was hiding, what could it have been, if it had any importance at all? Relationships are more than active on the show. Holden soon gets over his loss, and over time develops a relationship with Naomi. But that soon deteriorates when she reveals she kept a sample of the proto-molecule instead of destroying it, 
like the crew had agreed on, and then handing it over to Fred Johnson and the OPA. So the belt had a sample of their own, since Earth and Mars already do. They do make up a little bit, but at this point, they aren't quite back to what they were when they were getting busy in Zero-G. Alex has already been in a relationship, and is a father, but his activity on the Rossi has caused his wife and the family to want nothing to do with him now, though his kid still believes in him, giving him hope. Hell, even Amos might be moving forward, taking a bit of interest in Anna. I'm holding up for Kamina, though. I wanted to get more involved with the main cast. Which brings me to my favorites. Like I said, Alex is my shining star. Cass Anvar makes it impossible for you not to like him. His accent as Alice is so easy to throw a comical and positive vibe to every line of dialogue. He grows as a pilot, he grows as a man, and anytime he's on camera is just so much fun. Kamina follows up at number two, and no, it's not because she's super attractive, even though it's true. Her voice, her demeanor, her take-no-shit attitude... She's just an absolute badass as a woman. Wait, that sounds a lot like Avasarala, who's my number three. And Bobby? And Naomi? And even Anna, to some extent. Huh. I guess this show knows how to really make strong female characters. Which, speaking of that, there was a comment I made at the beginning of this show about this show's diversity. And I mean every word of it. They have a fantastic diverse cast, but they also don't call attention to it. There aren't obvious lines these women say about how they're breaking the glass ceiling or taking the man down. Cass Ambar as Alex, who is Canadian but born to Iranian parents, isn't talking about overcoming his skin color. Neither is Dominique Tipper as Naomi, a British woman of Dominican heritage, and Chad Coleman as Fred Johnson, a black American. You've got several Asian characters in Prax and the Mao family, playing both good and bad guys. Nick Tarabay, who plays Kotyer, is from Lebanon. Frankie Adams as Bobby Draper is Samoan. The list goes on. This show promotes true diversity by having it and not calling attention to it. Lastly, I cannot stress enough how this show has done wonders to my brain. A couple days before recording this, I watched the film Knives Out, that whodunit film made my brain wander, trying to come up with the answer to who's the murderer. I love these types of plots. The Expanse is no different, but instead of a single question I'm trying to answer, I've got 10 plus questions on the fly at any given moment I'm trying to figure out. I thought Prax's daughter May was dying in that lab. I thought Diego was going to kill off Kamina. I was sure that Miller was going to survive on Eros after how long they spent on him. Hell, I was sure that they were going to find Julie alive. Take all the political plots, what the Molecule was going to do next, all the battles, everything. I was constantly guessing, and I was consistently wrong. And I loved it. I loved never truly knowing what was coming next. Almost nothing in the show I got right. In fact, there's only one major plot point I ever got right. And that was that Naomi didn't destroy the sample of the protomolecule. That's literally the only major thing that I ever got right. And I was also wrong here on the podcast. Just over five hours have passed, nearly 7,000 words written, and now recording this in audio form 
nearly 45 minutes have passed. So I thought this was going to be a shorter show. And while it's technically right, it's really not the case. But it's not a bad thing. In fact, it's a great thing. This is how damn good this show has been for me. The fact that I can write so passionately about this, retell the story, and now make me even more impatient for these next few days to go by until the 13th so the fourth season can come to us? <sighs> Thank God it's not an episodic, it's just all being dumped on us. And the show is already being greenlit for a fifth season, so that excitement is still coming. Like I said, this is the best show I've ever watched. And early accounts of the fourth season have said it's even better, with now Amazon being at the helm. The trailer shows that the budget certainly increased, and the action has. Oh boy, it's increased. I cannot wait for the fourth season to begin, and the only question left is how many days do I finish it? I wish it'd be one, but we are getting into the holiday season, so there will no doubtably be interruptions. So thank you for checking out this episode of The Recall. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're watching this on YouTube, please like the video, subscribe to the channel if you haven't already, and leave a comment below about what you thought about the show. I'd really appreciate any sort of criticism. If you're listening to this on any audio platform, if you have the ability to rate the show, please do so. Otherwise, if you want to reach me, you can hit me up on Twitter at csradical, or email me at askcsradical at gmail.com. Lastly, if you're interested in any other podcasts I do, there's the Radical Wrestling Podcast and the anime-themed Church of Weeb, which are uploaded on the same audio channels as this show. There's also the VCR Podcast, a show that I do with a couple of friends, which is available on anchor.fm slash vcrpodcast, or on my YouTube channel, CS Radical, where all my other shows are featured. This has been the Radical Recall. I'm CS Radical, and thanks for stopping by. Music